0: If we could all please stand in honor of God's word, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22 today. Um, If you have a Bible, you can open it up there. Um, We're not really going to stay exactly there, but that's primarily what our focus is going to be. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 23 this morning. Luke tells us that they came. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to question one another, which of them it would be, who was going to do this. You may be seated as we go into prayer. Father, open up our hearts to your word this morning. So the anointing and the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus. Father, help us to grow, soften our hearts, renew our minds. Make these scriptures live to us today in a way that they never have before. Help us to see things that we haven't. Use me, Lord, in the way in which you desire, so that as we leave here today, I have done what it is you've asked me to do. Anoint this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of this message this week, pretty simply, Communion. It's going to be an easy one for us to remember. It's not a real... um, complicated title, and it's going to be more of a long introduction to a short sermon to the old rugged cross, as it were, today, because I want to set some foundational pieces as we go through a series called Church Life, where we're going to look today, starting at communion. Next week, we're going to take a look at baptism. The week after that, we're going to take a look at what perhaps membership looks like within the local congregation. And then the last of the month, we're going to take a look at what tithing means, why it is we're called to do that, how it is we're called to do that, and all of that. And what I really want us to focus on this morning as we dig into the scriptures is the importance of knowing why we do what we do as the body of Christ. Why we do what we do as the body of Christ is as vital as to the fact that we do what we do when we gather together on the Lord's day. Communion or the Lord's Supper, as we call it, is deeply symbolic and as necessary, it is a remembrance for us that we can recall, remember, and be reminded of what it is Jesus did for us. You'll notice all of the songs that were picked today were pointing in a particular direction. That's not an accident. We're focusing today on communion, and we're focusing on what it is Jesus did for us in and through the cross. So we're going to take a look at what it really means. In all of my years of doing ministry, and there's been a lot of years, even though I'm still fairly young, not quite 50 yet, I've had some unique questions made to me. Some very strange ones, in fact. Statements as well that I find to be very interesting. Sometimes a little bit unsettling and they kind of put you back on your heels and you kind of wonder. But dealing with youth and young adults, that's to actually be expected because they're the ones that actually have the audacity to ask what's going on in their mind in an honest way. Because they want answers to some of the things that they're wrestling with. Things that don't make sense to them. And things that they just really need to know about. So I've come to expect that over the years of ministry when somebody throws an offhanded comment or a question. And, and I had someone come to me um, sometime back with one of those things. It's a question that I always hope for because in their honesty and in their curiosity, whether they be a youth or a young adult or even an adult for that matter who's searching, they aren't afraid to ask and think those questions and therefore they ask them so that we can then have a good conversation. It opens up a lot of doors for us to be able to minister and to witness. And I had someone come to me up once when we were getting ready for a baptismal service at the church that I was at before. And made the statement, actually questioned. They looked at me and said, so once I get dunked, I want to be baptized. So once I get dunked, I'm good, right? Once I get dunked, I'm good, right? Now that's an honest statement. It's an honest question. It's an honest thought which needed to be lovingly and kindly addressed and redirected in and around what it really means to get dunked. Because no, in fact, if you don't know Jesus, you're not all right if you get dunked. All you are is wet. That's it. You're just wet. If you don't understand why it is you're doing what you're doing, and you don't understand the principle behind it. So really, the deeper question and, and, and the approach that was taken then is we asked the question, why do you want to get dunked? What's going on in your spirit and in your mind that causes you to ask that question? Do you really understand what it means, or do you just want to play in the tub? It's a good place to start. You see, we live in a time and we live in a place where assumptions are made on both sides of this kind of conversation. Where we think everybody knows what we know, and they think they know what we know, but they don't really know what we know, and we aren't entirely sure that they do either if you're confused, that's good, because that's that's where people usually are in situations like this. Which is why it's important that we understand that the honest seeker, perhaps, who shows up here just, you know, on a Sunday morning, or who goes to a Bible study, or who goes to a group who wants to ask these questions, or even a person who has just come into a relationship with who Jesus is, is going to be asking why it is we do the things that we just accept as a normal thing that we've always done because we've been doing it for so long. They begin to ask about these things. The things that we do, perhaps just second nature, as it were. Why it is we do them. What's the meaning behind it? You do it and you act as though everybody ought to know exactly what it is you're doing, but I don't get it. you know, baptism is one of those things. Why do we put people underwater and then lift them up and say a whole bunch of stuff and ask them for a testimony and all that? Communion as well is another one of those things that brings a lot of confusion at times. It's known as the sacraments or the ordinances of the church. We're not gonna get hung up on what the words are. It's called both of those things or the Lord's Supper. Those are things that get asked about. Why do we do this? Can I do this? Can I not do this? All of that stuff. Misunderstandings like being dunked and then being okay, right? Or anyone can have one of them little wafer cookies with a little shot of wine, right? I can go up and I can do that. That's okay for me to do, right? Those are all questions that start good conversations for people. And if we're, we're open and we're honest and we're watching for what it is people are asking, genuinely asking, we have the ability to speak into that situation and help people move forward a little bit. To say, however, though, that it's only newcomers or non-believers who who don't really get this is is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Now, to be sure, we do live in a time and in a place that's anti-biblical, that's anti-Christian, that's anti-church. And that for the most part, most people we run into are completely disinterested in what is going on here within this building. I understand that. I understand that. That's true. But that, if we see it for what it really is, provides opportunity for us to be able to have a conversation with somebody around why it is we're doing what we're doing. Instead of just shutting them off and pushing them away and ignoring them. See, we can't do that. It provides great opportunity to share and to witness if we're sensitive to what God's doing. Now, that is a course unless we just get frustrated and disgusted with those people who just simply don't understand what we understand. And then circling the wagons in order to protect what it is we do understand so nobody corrupts what it is we know. And nobody comes in who doesn't know what we know, who causes us to have to think differently or even be challenged in what it is we know in order to be explain it to them. Fighting like crazy not to lose the ground that we think we already have within our culture. We can't think that way. We can't think that way for two reasons. One, because it's wrong, and two, because it's dynamically unbiblical. We're not called to hide ourselves away in a corner and hope we don't get contaminated by the world. We're boats on the water, not allowing the water into the boat. But in order for a boat to do what a boat's supposed to do, it has to be on the water, not in dry dock. And the struggle that we face, and one of the main reasons that the elders and I believe it's very important to look at some of these things this morning and over the course of the next month, is that in the church, sadly, in the church, we aren't entirely certain either why and how these things work themselves out and how it is we can explain them to people who ask these questions of us. And if we are sure of those things, oftentimes we struggle when we're put in a situation to explain and answer these questions very honestly from people who are just simply wanting to figure out why and how it works. Sometimes it's difficult for us to help people connect all the dots, as it were. That's the best analogy I can come up with. Because we need to understand within this book, there are dots that need to be connected. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, God's story is told. And we have to be careful not to do a disservice to the Scriptures, By taking things out and parking them over here and trying to make things out of something that they're not. We do a disservice to the authority of the scriptures in our life. If we don't read them with the understanding that from Genesis to Revelation, this book is telling us a story. And that story is God's story. And to fracture it off and try and make sense out of it, separate from the entire context, puts us in a bad position. So this week, and for good reason because it's Communion Sunday, I want us to take a look at communion and what that actually means for us. And if we're going to be a congregation on mission within the community that we are in, sharing the truth of the gospel with people and helping them understand why it is we believe what we believe, it's my responsibility pastorally to help us all understand the whys, Not just the that's in the scripture, but the why's of scripture. Why it is we're doing the things that we're doing. Why is it we partake of communion? So I sat down this week and I tried to gather my thoughts. As Norman and I talked earlier, we both know that that's kind of a difficult thing to do. To gather all my thoughts and funnel them into one spot. But I tried to gather them under three headings. Otherwise I was going to be here forever and a day with this. And I may perhaps still be, but enough of that. Number one, what communion isn't? That's the first thing. Number two, what communion is. And number three, why we do it. Those are the three things I want us to look at. Hoping to focus on the second two more so than the first one. But understand that I'm not grabbing every single thing that we can learn about communion today, today, otherwise we wouldn't be home in time for supper. I'm being purposeful with what it is we're going to talk about in order that we can understand what it isn't, what it is, and why we do it. First of all, what it isn't, we have to get our thoughts around the truth that God's story is, again, one continuous story from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. And it points in one direction. It points to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of the people of Israel. And this book finds its absolute and ultimate fulfillment in him. Everything that is written about in this book points to Jesus, ultimately, again, finding its fulfillment in him. So we have to be careful with what you know, I call Christian string theories and all of these kind of proof texting, trying to figure out how things make sense the way they make sense. In other words, I have this belief, therefore I'm going to go here and prove that belief. That's backwards. See, we have to take a look at it this way. This story points to Jesus. That means then that when we settle ourselves out here in Luke chapter 22 and this Last Supper scene that we have with his disciples is that Jesus is not inventing a brand new story and a brand new direction for people to go. No, deeply seated in Luke chapter 22 and in Matthew and in Mark are echoes all the way back of that ancient story of the people of Israel all the way back in the history which Jesus is redefining for them and for us in and through himself. So communion is not plan B of a plan A and a plan B thing. Some people think that that's the case. It's not. Communion is not plan B, as if all of a sudden God had a plan A, and then things went terribly wrong when Adam and Eve decided to go pear-shaped and sin in the garden. He then stepped back in a panic like it was a surprise, and looked at Jesus and said, we got to come up with a different plan. So do you think maybe you could do this instead? This is not what this is. God didn't have a plan A. No, from eternity past, we see in verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been what? Determined. This was settled before it ever started that this was exactly what was supposed to happen from eternity past. So the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate within the communion table is not plan B. It's the plan. It is the story of God. Everything pointed to that, right from Genesis 3.15 on. The other thing that it is not, is it is not a literal participation in the literal body and literal blood of Jesus. In other words, when we take the bread and when we take the cup, they don't transform literally into the actual body of Jesus and the actual blood of Jesus. That's not what they do. There's a fancy word for that called transubstantiation. doesn't matter. That's not what this is. And I don't want to dwell on that for too long because what happens when you go down that road is that then this becomes the means of salvation and sanctification. But what it also means is that only a select faith, tradition, group of people are then allowed to partake of communion and it makes it inclusive for those people and exclusive for everybody else that's not what's going on here in luke chapter 22 we have to make sure that that's not the direction we go either it is not that it is not that at all in fact the table of the lord is for all who name the name of jesus all who have called on him as Lord and King. For every person who has bowed their knee to him and given their hearts to him as Savior, believing in the atoning work of the cross, meaning that what he did on the cross brings forgiveness to me for my sins, forgiveness to you for your sins, regardless of what it is you could do. That's what this is celebrating. If we have given ourselves over to that, it doesn't matter where you are. You have the right to partake of the table of the Lord. Membership in a particular congregation or a faith tradition does not include or exclude you from the table. Membership in God's family and in his kingdom does. So those are the things that it's not. And I go on forever and a day about all the other things that it's not. But I think that those are probably the two biggest things that people trip over and settle out. So I think we'll move on from there to take a look at what it is. Number two, what it is. I've said this a couple of times, it's important to remind ourselves again that it is deeply rooted in the history of the people of Israel and in the story of God, the 66 books that we have in the Bible. We find this in the Old Testament in many places, and we were sharing earlier, Norma and I were in my office, that I could have gone a whole bunch of different places today with this. In fact, I have a whole bunch of notes that brought me in a whole bunch of different places, and it would have been completely unproductive to do that. But it is throughout the Old Testament that helps us understand what was going on here. And I want to focus on just two this morning. One right now I want us to take a look at. And the second one I want us to look at when we ask the question or we discover why it is we do. We do. So the first is the absolute defining moment for the people of Israel. We've touched on this in the past. It's important for us to understand it over and over again. The defining moment for the people of Israel is found in the book of Exodus in chapter 12. When the Hebrew people had been in slavery for almost 400 years in Egypt, crying out over and over again to God for their deliverance and for their salvation from their oppressors and from their overseers and their masters. Sound like a familiar story? We just kind of went through that there in this Christmas Advent season, didn't we? Because the people of God in Jesus' day, just before he came, were doing exactly the same thing. Over and over and over again, they were calling out to Jesus for... Or they were calling out to God the Father for deliverance from their oppressors. Be helpful for us to understand these things. You see, we have to go to the scriptures to hear God, not to prove what we believe. The scriptures are consistent. It's we who are inconsistent. And that to understand this story, we have to go into the scriptures. And it's straight across the board... And there's four themes that I want us to understand that are important for us as we take a look at all the things that we're doing here. And, and settle in on these. I've brought these to you before. It's important that we take a look at them again. When you're reading the scriptures, especially when you're taking a look at what the story is in relation to communion, we have four things we look at. Themes, as it were, that run throughout all of the scripture. Creation, covenant, exile, exodus. Whenever you're reading the scriptures, ask yourself, where are we in the story of God in relation to these four things? More often than not, you'll find yourself in one of these positions, and you'll find the people of God in one of these positions as well. So creation, number one, God is the creator God, and he is active within his creation. We have to remember that. We celebrate the table of the Lord because he was active in his creation in a way that nobody else ever was. He's active in his creation. He's always remembered that way by His people. If you read the Psalms slowly, you'll find all of these things working out. But most especially, you'll find this creation theme within the Psalms. I leave that to you if you're going to do devotions in the Psalms throughout this year. Ask yourself, are we looking at creation theology? Are they remembering what it is God has done for them? So creation, covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. That's why we have the table of the Lord. Because He is a covenant-keeping God. Even when we fail within our promises to him and we fail within the things that we say we're going to do, he does not. When God says that he has a promise he's going to keep, he always keeps that promise. Up to and including the pain of death. Again, the celebration of the Lord's table gives clear evidence of that. And that's what we're looking at today. The third one is exile, one that nobody likes. It's that, that the whole piece of being separated from God. You see, God always puts his people into exile When they and we rebel. We don't like that, do we? I mean, maybe you enjoy it, I don't. So I'll speak for myself. I don't like this. When we put ourselves in a position and we are rebelling against him and his commands, he puts us into exile, whatever that exile may be. You see, we see this theme over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The people of God follow through with what they're supposed to, and they are raised up. They decide not to follow through with what they're supposed to. What happens to them? They end up in exile. Egypt, Babylon, all those places. See, Exodus 12, once again, is the defining moment for God's people. Because the fourth thing that he does is Exodus. Exodus. Because God has created humans in his image for fellowship with him, fellowship with one another, and the care of his good creation. That's what's going on. And because he is a covenant-keeping God... Whenever his people are in exile and they genuinely pray in repentance, asking for him to work on their behalf, guess what he does? He does. We see it in Exodus chapter 12, the people of Israel being called out of Egypt. We see it in Babylon when you read Zechariah, when you take a look at Nehemiah and Ezra and all of those things that are going on and at the end of the book of 2 Chronicles. God operates on their behalf and he brings them back out of exile through an exodus into their home. And this ultimately is what we celebrate here with the table of the Lord, the ultimate exodus. See, Exodus 12. It's the first major deliverance and fulfillment of his covenant promise to create and call a people for himself. That's why it's important for us to know that. And I want you to see something when we take a look at the scriptures that when God institutes the Passover meal, he does so through a meal just like Jesus is doing here. He doesn't give them some sort of philosophical, touchy-feely kind of thing, or some sort of weirdo cosmic concept that if they just travel far enough and wide enough and whatever it may be, then they can finally find God and step into some reality. No. What does God do? He gives them a meal, a simple meal. And what we find Jesus and his disciples celebrating in Luke 22, they do so because of Exodus 12. Exodus 12, 1 and 2 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. We're starting over. This shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So having brought about all of the plagues of Egypt, if you read the first part of Exodus, God is now bringing the judgment plague for Pharaoh's hard-hearted disobedience, the ultimate plague of what? Death. It's not something we want to get to. It's never a place that we want to be. Now, before we take a look at this story and we think that this is a rather cold way in which God operates, in a mean-spirited way on the part of God, as many do, many people look at that and they read that and they think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Many people will reject the Bible out of hand because they think that God is just this mean and cold-hearted person. They see this as reason to not believe. We have to understand something. That God is a good, good Father. And much as we discipline our children in stages, if our child does something wrong, we don't ground them for six years in a day and whoop them six ways to Sunday first. We encourage them to do the right thing. Here's what's going on. God, through Moses has pleaded with this Pharaoh to let his people go. At least 10 times that we have recorded in the scriptures, he has had an opportunity to do the right thing. He has been warned that this is how you're supposed to operate, all to no avail. All to no avail. Thus, and finally, at the end of all things, God says, okay, enough's enough. We're going to bring the final judgment, and the death angel is going to come, because this is obviously the only thing that's going to wake Pharaoh up, death. Death. So in order for God's people to be spared, we find here in Exodus chapter 12 that a lamb had to be sacrificed, and a lamb had to be cooked, and a lamb had to be eaten. In addition to that, we also find it is necessary that blood be shed for ultimate protection and identification. In other words, ownership. Ownership. Exodus 12, verses 6 and 7. And you shall come, or you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Talking about the Passover feast. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. That's strange. It's just a little bit weird. I understand that. And sometimes it's really hard to understand, especially 3,000, 4,000 years on today, when this type of sacrifice is seen as cruel, it's seen as barbaric, and it's seen as unnecessary. But this is how things happened then. Forgiveness came through the shedding of blood. Still happens today, too. We just don't get our hands around that. You see, the blood symbolizes ownership. Ownership. Now, some of you may already know this. I understand that. But be patient with those of us who don't. It symbolizes ownership. That the house and all that in it belonged to the Lord. So that when the death angel came, he passed over the house and all that were in that house lived. They lived. Exodus 12:14. because of all of that, this is, as I have said, the defining moment for the people of Israel. I can't say that enough. Exodus twelve fourteen: this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. You see, we discover, if you read your Bible at all, in, in the Chronicles and the Histories and in the Kings, that they didn't. They didn't. And there was problems as a result of that, but that's for another time. You see, the covenant-keeping God has and is delivering you. That's the whole point here. Your responsibility is to remember. This is a memorial. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Thus communion. We are to remember what it is he's done. So why do we do it? When Jesus, in Luke 22, we discover here, and I chose this text as opposed to Matthew and Mark, which also give direct links to this Last Supper. I chose it because Luke seems to capture this covenant moment better than Matthew and Mark do. See, Jesus is redefining not only what Passover now means in him. Again, that's our Ephesians chapter 1 theme. He's redefining what Passover means in him, but he's also revealing who it was all really about And what it actually ultimately symbolizes. Passover is really about this Jesus the Messiah. This was the plan from eternity past. Passover is really about Jesus the Messiah. And him being the ultimate Passover lamb. The perfect sacrifice for humanity. Who is sacrificed in order that our exile. My exile. Your exile in sin. And complete separation from God would come to an end. That's what he's doing here. See, this meal symbolizes, in a very real way, the new Exodus, the ultimate Exodus, not just for the people of Israel, but for the entire world. Creation groans in what? With eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. This is the ultimate new Exodus. Luke 22, verse 17 and 18, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, he takes the cup, he doesn't partake of it, and he doesn't tell them to pass it around. Luke tells us that he tells them to divide it amongst themselves so that they each have a little bit. Why? Because he wants them to partake Of the cup together. He's not going to. Why? Because he has his own that he has to deal with. He knows what's coming. He's instead bringing about through his actions. The new covenant. Which find its fulfillment in him. The entire biblical story of God. Has been pointing to this. The new covenant. Hidden once again as we learned last year. In plain sight. They didn't get it, but there it was in plain sight. It's in plain sight, at least for us, you see. Now, Jeremiah, the opening scripture that I read this morning to you before we took our offering, has something to say about this. When he said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is why I chose that text. Hidden in plain sight. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them, where? By the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. That's grace. You see, the people of Israel were sent out of Egypt with responsibilities. And then they were given the law. We don't have time for that today. But in order to be God's people, you were chosen by him, you were made his people, then you fulfilled the law. I am going to put that law on your heart. By grace, you're going to step into the relationship with me because of what I'm going to do. It's nothing you can do. We come to the table of the Lord because God allows us to. He provides for us through Jesus. It's his grace that allows us to stand and partake of I have nothing to offer him. I have nothing to bring to him. If judgment happened this morning, I wouldn't be here preaching to you right now. I don't suspect many of you would be here either. But that's God's grace and his goodness, Jeremiah tells us. In reading this, we sometimes wonder why it's not everyone just looked at Jesus and understood that all these Old Testament voices and prophetic words just spoke of him. Why don't people get this? Why don't they understand this? And We have to remember that we have the benefit of time and history. We're 2,000 years on from this. Okay? And as Alistair Begg always says, we have the ability and the capacity to read this book backwards. Now, that doesn't mean start at Revelation and work your way to Genesis. What it does mean is that we have the New Testament. People like Peter and Paul worked all this stuff out for us. So that we can look at the text and go, okay, there it is, I get it. But they were wrestling this through. This is why they missed these things. So looking back here to these texts from 2018 and knowing what we know and believe, we can simply say, of course that's Jesus. I don't know why people don't get it. Well, they don't get it because it wouldn't have been immediately obvious to them any more than it is to one today who is searching without the motivating power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. It is all just foolishness to people when they read it. It makes no sense. How would an unbeliever read these things? It's a question to ask. We're back to how it is we can communicate with folks that don't know. Try to remember that in your life because, you see, we need to meet people where they're at, as scary as and as unsettling as it is. We need to allow them to ask the challenging questions, which is why it is we need to know what we know and what we believe so that we can share that with folks. Now, you see, this is the new covenant, born out of the old covenant, because of the promises of God to put his law in our hearts and to forgive our sins and to remember them no more. And that's exactly what he is saying through Jeremiah the prophet. Why? Because God's story is not fractured. What Jeremiah was saying was given to him by God through his Holy Spirit. So that prophetic schemer from Genesis to Revelation is all saying the same thing in a different way. It all points to Jesus. So Jesus is redefining the Passover around himself, which is a fairly arrogant thing to do if you aren't God. I leave that to you to wrestle through. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, I'm the Passover lamb sacrificed for you picture that was given to you in the Old Testament how God delivered your people all those years ago I am that Passover lamb this is my body physically and symbolically in the bread symbolically physically I'm going to be broken for you before the tomorrow's over he then continued likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood it's powerful my blood this is my blood shed literally and poured out literally for the forgiveness of your sins and figuratively painted upon the doorposts of your heart and figuratively painted upon the doorposts of my heart why because that indicates ownership who do I belong to who do you belong to that's what defines whether you can partake of this table or not not membership you see here's the deal At that point, we are passed over by death. Even though physical death in this world comes to everybody. Resurrection is the promise that we are given because Jesus overcame death. It no longer has the final say. So this morning, as we wrap up here, and we are coming before the table of the Lord, I want us to remember every one of the promises of God. We need to remember them all. Just skipped a rock across the top of it. But what Paul says here is that, all of the promises of God in 2 Corinthians one twenty, all of the promises of God find their yes where? In Him. Ask why it's through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. I could have the worship team and if I could have those who are going to help with communion, please come forward. I want to encourage you. Don't take the table of the Lord lightly. Don't get so used to it. And I'm not saying that we do. I'm just, I want to remind you, we need to remember that when we partake of this, we are remembering what it is Jesus did for us. We're doing so in the present, remembering the past because of the promise of the future. So we understand that when God sent Jesus, that's why I said last week, the cross wasn't a bother for Jesus because he'd already laid down his life where? in the manger. Why? Because God's story from Genesis to Revelation isn't fractured. Every single thing that happened happened exactly as it was supposed to to bring us to this moment in time where we celebrate the table of the Lord in remembrance of what it is he did for you and what he did for me. If you know Jesus is Lord, I would encourage you as we take the elements to just stay in your seat and hold them until we are ready. We'll all partake together. But as they're being handed out, I want to encourage you, search your hearts this morning. Ask yourself, Father, is there anything that I need to give over to you that I'm coming up short on? Is there anything that I need to give over to you that you can work on in me? Now's the time to do it because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that that's what we're supposed to do. Search our hearts. Be open before the Lord. Say, Father, what is it you have for me? What do I need to work on? Encourage me in that.